Well, hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and we have a great show for you. We're going to talk to uh, crime novelist Joe Clifford, super interesting guy, uh, and uh, we had a great conversation. And uh, we're also going to hear from uh, Eric Campbell of Down and Out Books, the sponsor of the show. And in, in fact, uh, let's start with that. Here's Eric Campbell. Hi, Frank. This is Eric Campbell with Down and Out Books with a few titles that drop in the next few days. From Shotgun Honey comes Fast Bang Booze by Lawrence Maddox. Double-crossed in a drug deal gone wrong, Frank, Popoff, and their crew have one night to recover their stolen cash or get wiped off the map. Fast Bang Booze is a beat-the-clock thrill ride that races through 1993 Los Angeles to a rollicking deadly climax. Gary Phillips calls this one a thrill-paced, gritty and absorbing hardcore slice of 90s underworld LA. The third issue of Down and Out the magazine is almost ready to go. Rick Ullerman, the editor, has pulled together another killer issue. The headliner features a new story by Barry Lancet, his Jim Brody character. That's right. The Jim Brody, the J.J. Abrams, recently optioned for a new movie series. Other stories come from Patty Abbott, Michael Bracken, Rob Randizzi, Art Taylor, just to name a few. Oh, and I can't forget to mention that we also have the Sawyer Brothers, Mick and Jersey. Their origin stories by none other than Frank Zavero and Jim Wilski. Just in time for the reissue of Blood on Blood, the first book of the Anya series. Another great issue all the way around. Your listeners can find more at downandoutbooks.com. Thanks a million for having me on the show, Frank. Well, thanks, Eric. I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of uh, the Down and Out uh, Books uh, group of authors. And if you look at the list of uh, men and women that they have in their stable, it's, it's uh, pretty humbling to even be in, uh, in the same, uh, on the same website as those people. So if you like your crime fiction, dark, dirty, gritty, great characters, great action, and uh, maybe some social commentary while you're not looking, uh, Down and Out Books is the place to go. But now let's move into the main part of our show where we speak with uh, author Joe Clifford. Uh, he and I had an interesting conversation I think you're going to enjoy, and uh, he had some pretty cool things to say. So uh, without further ado, let's, uh, let's talk to Joe. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think I'll uh, start off by congratulating you or give there's certainly congratulations are in order there's uh there's an announcement uh, not too terribly long ago that you signed a three book deal with down and out books can you tell me about that yeah it's fucking awesome uh eric campbell i'm, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing over there i had three books that i've been writing in between the jay porter books i write uh, i've been writing two books a year right the jay porter book i write a standalone uh, and one of the uh, detriments of, you know, uh, writing a uh, series is that um, publishers tend to want the series. You know, if you, you write the book in a series, so when you have these standalones, they're a little bit hard to replace. So it took me a while to find the right home for them. Uh, but I'm thrilled. Uh, these are three of the best things I, I think I've, I've written. Uh, the first one comes out. The one that got away, uh, Paula Hawkins, uh, Girl on the Train, was kind enough to read it and, and write a, a very nice blurb for it. And uh, I think it's the best uh, crime novel I've written. And that's the one that got away? The one that got away. That'll be out December of this year. And what are the other two? 
The other one's called Skunk Train. It's about two kids on the run with stolen drug money. Uh, and third one is called Occam's Razor, which is about a former, former number one uh, NFL prospect who uh, blows out his knee and enters the world of uh, private security and uh, a case that brings him back to uh, Miami, which is where I spent three of the hardest, most miserable years of my life in grad school. <laughs> Where'd you go to grad school at? I went to grad school at Florida International University, home of oh. Dennis Lehane. Oh, it's yeah. always hard when you go, uh, you know, you're following in the footsteps of Dennis Lehane because nothing you do, <laughs> no matter how good you do it, is ever going to be as good as what Dennis <laughs> Lehane does. Uh, so you're already starting off in the best you can hope for a second. Which is really <laughs> hey, um, silver medal's still a medal, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's you, know, yeah, I, you know, I was the kind of guy that took classes when I found out, you know, early on, I remember being in class and the teacher being, you know, like, hey, I don't give out A's. I'm like, well, I'm fucking gone. Like, I'm not fucking sitting here for 16 weeks to get a B plus. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it speaks to a different kind of mentality, I guess. Uh, silver medal's great. I mean, there's plenty of uh, great second place oats, right? You got oats, you got Messina, uh, um, you got uh, other, who are the other uh, members of Lisa Simpson's second greatest band? Uh, Garfunkel? Yeah. In I mean, I'm not in second. Oats, did you <laughs> I'm say assuming oats? that I'm the best person after Dennis Lehane. I'm not even fucking close. There's uh, tons of, uh, uh, Richard Blanco read uh, uh, Obama's uh, uh, inauguration poem a few years ago. And there's Patty Engel, who was a uh, New York Times, been reviewing the Times. So there's tons of writers who from that program were way ahead of me. But um, I just knew that no matter what I did, I'd never come close to Dennis Lehane. So. Yeah, I, uh, I spoke with a guy named Zach Budrick, uh, first time novelist last month, and he's a was also a massive Lehane uh, fan, and, and I love Dennis Lehane as well. Uh, what do you have a favorite? work of his or just all of it yeah the story he kind of contributed to an anthology that i was in charge of called trouble in the heartland yeah. crime stories inspired by the sons yeah. of bruce springsteen and i knew i had one favor i barely knew the guy i didn't know him. I, went to the same school. I knew i had one favor i'd probably parlay that into a blurb or get a short story for this anthology uh we did and i, I used it for a short story that dennis kindly contributed uh this fantastic uh state trooper uh, an amazing amazing uh, story he's an amazing amazing writer and very generous giving guy yeah, that was super cool. I I I, I bought that uh, anthology. It came out what about three years ago or so? Yeah, maybe four years ago. Anthony. Yeah, we had an Anthony nomination for that. Yeah, right. well, well deserved. It was a great collection uh, and some very cool authors in there. I remember when I uh, came across it the first time. My initial reaction was actually I was crestfallen because I, I was like. Wow, I I wish I would have seen a call for submissions for this or something because that call for submissions lasted about eight minutes. We were, we were on Facebook one morning, <laughs> and our buddy Chris Lee could had a, a story. He called the Candy's Room, and and one of us was joking around. You know, so we're hanging around Facebook on a Monday morning, like you know, the office, and uh, one of us made a joke like, "Hey, we should do a whole anthology inspired by Springsteen songs." And within really by noon, we had every contributor, everybody signed up, jumped on, wanted to be in it. It was amazing. I had no idea. I grew up on the East Coast, and I, when I came out to San Francisco, I had to hide my love of Springsteen for a long time because out here, San Francisco is kind of cooler than cool, and you know they like Fugazi and all that David Byrne and all that crap that I, mean, I can't stand. Um, but I was a Springsteen guy, you know, hard on your sleeve, blue collar, mm -hmm. uh, pride, justice, the American way, the broken American dream, that sort of shit. And um, I didn't admit how much I loved Springsteen for a number of years. And when I finally came out of the Springsteen closet, uh, I was I was shocked to find how many people in the crime writing community adored him and looked up to him. I mean, he is probably yeah. the single biggest uh, influence yeah. in, in what I do. Yeah. Well, I, when I was prepping for this a little bit, just looking through your bio and stuff and 
I had forgotten you did that anthology that you were the one who put it together. When I saw that, I was like, he did that. Yeah. I mean, that, that I'm a huge Springsteen fan since Along I was with 10, Paul, 10 years old. Paul guys, uh, uh, Brian Hanowich and, uh, Isaac Kirkman and, um, uh, yeah, Chris Leak, um, all those guys, uh, uh, were, were hugely, uh, you know, they were very instrumental in getting that off the ground. Um, Ryan sales. And so, uh, yeah, we wanted to do a second uh, edition of that. And Springsteen's Lawyers, we got permission from Springsteen Lawyers, which took us about a year to get permission finally. And uh, we went back to get permission a second time. And they're like, no, that's, you got one. Because uh, I really want to do a follow-up. Lou Bernie, I talked to him at VoucherCon. He was, said the same thing he did. Like, man, I wish I'd known. So I had this whole collection of people who wanted to do a, a Springsteen story. But his lawyer said, no, and I'm not going to. They were very generous the first time. I'm not going to piss them off the second time. That's curious. I I, uh, I wonder why. I no, I, mean... I think it's just a matter of using his name and making money off of it. Um, the first time we had donated uh, a large percentage of the proceeds to uh, the Bob Woodruff Foundation to help yeah, veterans. Stay, stay uh, and the second time it was just going to be a straight anthology. You know, we pay the writers, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, they said no. And the truth is we could probably get away with it. Um, you know, there's, there's a weird gray area with these things, uh, using an artist's name, you know, inspired by such and such, but, uh, yeah, you know, you, would, you, want you wouldn't want to do that though. Yeah. And that'd be kind of, I mean, for a yeah. guy that you respect and, and right, be a little douchey. I don't want yeah, to. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Which, uh, which Springsteen songs didn't get a treatment in trouble in the heartland that you still think would be just perfect for crime fiction? Oh man, I mean, Lucky Town, Nebraska. I mean, you know, there's so much off in Nebraska you could have yeah. done. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, the, the methamphetamine song of the ghost of Tom Joad. Uh, I don't think Tom Joad was in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, the guy's been doing this since what, 71 or something? Um, yeah, the first two came about, out in 73, but he'd been doing it for like almost a decade before that. Yeah, it's not on 57th Street, my favorite Springsteen song. Oh, yeah. Um, off of Wild Innocent East Street Shuffle, and uh, I was, you know, nobody did that one. Um, but yeah, there's there's really no shortage. And that's the beauty of, of, of the boss is you could take just about any crime story and find a title that it would work with. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah, I totally agree. I'm I'm uh, like I said, I'm a huge fan since I was 10 years old, and my dad brought home Darkness on the Edge of Town and told me the story behind him here and racing in the street on the radio, and I was pretty much. Uh, can you tell me the story? I just love uh, these. Yeah, he was he was driving an old '72 Pontiac Grand Prix, just driving around town, you know, up in the city. And uh, some guy pulled up next to him. And my dad was a big gearhead when he was in school and everything, and it never really left him. And guy pulls up next to him, starts revving his engine, and dad's like, "Oh fuck it, all right, let's go." And he just blows the guy's doors off, you know, and like. Five minutes later, he's listening to FM radio, feeling pretty mean, pretty feel pretty pretty cool. And the guy comes on, and says, "Hey, this is a new cut from uh, an album called Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's racing in the street." And you know, I mean, the serendipity yeah. of that is just you know oh, impossible to replicate. So he brings it home, and the funny thing is, is he had given me one of these record players, those like plastic, real crappy, scratchy record players, and uh, but it was my first record player. And I was like nine, nine years old at the time, 10 maybe. And they gave me a few of his records to play on there because I didn't have any records either. So I was listening to Uriah Heep and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Neil Diamond and Rod Stewart and all this stuff on it. And and I 
put the records in the rack, uh, but I put the rack close too close to our baseboard heater, and it warped the LPs. Uh, some of the people listening to this are like, "What's an LP? It's like a big <laughs> CD, uh, but more rubby, rubbery." So I just trash these records. So he brings home this "Darkness on the Edge of Town" record and puts it down he goes and he points at me he says and hey this is a brand new record i want to listen to it you don't don't touch it don't put you know i don't want you to ruin it and i looked at it and i said ah, i don't even like that guy <laughs> within a year man i knew every song by heart you know and i was you know hooked for life so i mean it's my favorite record is too it's it's um there's something uh, i mean darkness obviously but there, there's a there's an edge to that and of course the story was you know he you know he tells a story about writing that record he was you know, in this depressed state, which probably is another reason that appeals to certain kinds of people. But, uh, you know, he's going through that, uh, you know, the lawsuit with his, with his management. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an ardor and a, and a vitriol there that, that, I mean, he's always got that edge, but not, not like that. That's, that's some real yeah. fire and passion. And, uh, you know, and resilience. Resilience, yeah. too. That's the other. Yeah. I think that's yeah, what that's makes good. it different than a lot of other work is it's, yeah, it's just chock full of darkness and, and desperation and bitterness and, and even hopelessness at times, but there's that that resilience in there that's just stubborn. Kind of yeah, it's a stubborn. Yeah, record. yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it is a stubborn record. Absolutely. Well, kudos to you for putting that together. That's a fantastic uh, anthology. I really enjoyed it. You know, there's so many people who, who helped get that off the ground, and um, and you know, and it's kind of a shame that you know, I mean, it came out. I think it came out really, uh, it was a really good book, and and you just wish these things could get more attention, more airplay. Uh, as you know, it's so hard to get yeah. noticed. We got a review in Backstreet's Magazine. Uh, we got the Anthony, and still we didn't reach, uh, you know, a lot of people here be like, what, there's that, that's out there? Because there's so many books out there. How do you yeah. how do you compete with, with the glut? And I think anthologies are, are even a, a, a more difficult sell sometimes uh, for some reason. Some people that just, they don't realize that they would love short stories if they just gave them a chance and read some. Well, I mean, it's not, and I don't think it's entirely their fault because we are given so much shit in high school to read that I think it turns you off this story. I mean, I've said, and I, t- I do this a lot, you know, talking about this this form, and, you know, there's no 16-year-old kid on the planet who should be reading The Scarlet Letter. There's no, I mean, later in life, it's a great story, but, like, you should not be reading that at that time. Or am I getting the right Hawthorne story? Was it Scarlet Letter? The, yeah, the, the letter it's A. Not cool, right? I can't remember. Point is, nobody should read Nathaniel Hawthorne at 16. I'm forgetting. I forgot half the guys in Summer Pulp, which I'm going to pay for later. But uh, I'm forgetting uh, the names of, of Nathaniel Hawthorne short stories, even though I was forced to read them. And I, I like Nathaniel Hawthorne. I have nothing against the guy. Uh, but I just don't think a 16 year old is development, developmentally ready to uh, tackle the, you know, the themes in that. And so instead of having you know, things that would resonate and turn kids on to a lifetime of reading, you know, having them read, you know, a novel like The Hunger Games now, for instance, which I've never read and I have no desire to read it, but the fact is I know people read it and instead they don't give kids that. They give kids like just that stuff in the canon that really creates this lifetime long uh, aversion to reading. It wasn't until I got out of high school that I, I started reading, really. And um, it's a shame because, you know, people grow up and they, you know, just don't want to read. There's, there's people, President of the United States uh, probably doesn't read. Kanye West probably doesn't read. I mean, it's, it's Have you had of, that happen? Have you ever been in a, because uh, the first time it happened to me, it knocked me down. I'm, I'm in a bookstore and granted it was one of those bookstores that also has videos and, you know, it was multi-purpose ones, kind of like a Borders or something. Somebody walks in and I'm trying to hook them like, hey, I, do you like crime fiction? Look dead in the eye and said, 
I don't read. And and not with anger, not with shame, but with pride, you know, and, and it just knocked me down. I was like, wow, you don't read. You know, I, the sad thing is I was one of those guys when I, well, I was 20, I was 20, 21, hanging out with my friend Jimmy. And uh, he was like, what are you reading? I was like, I don't read, you know? And I was proud of it. Like, cause I mean, cause high school, that whole experience of coming up and like, listen, man, I know what you're about and what you're doing with your life and what you, you think you're doing, you're doing, you got to read. And so from that moment on, I've, I've been a, you know, a gracious reader and, um, and, and I'm thankful that Jimmy for that, I, you know, probably would have found it eventually, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there is a pride sort of, uh, but there's, you know, there's a strange pride people taking, you know, I was, you know, my history, you know, the, the drug addict stuff and there's a weird pride all junkies have like i don't know it's a maybe thumbing your nose at convention or or being different or just championing uh being an iconic class and if that means you know embracing ignorance you embrace ignorance which is a shame uh, because the point of this life should be to you know be making yourself better and i don't know how one can really make themselves better if you're tearing off an entire art form like reading which is a pretty large Pretty fucking big, pretty, pretty <laughs> and, and it has big. it has the advantage of stretching back past uh, you know about 1930 or so you know or 19. Well, that's how you know people who don't read. When you ask them the fair book, they say the Bible. You're like, there's no, there's no fucking way the Bible is. Nothing is the Bible. I mean, like, believe what you want to believe. I believe what I believe. But like, there's no way you're going to tell me through the history of the written word, your favorite book is literally the Bible. You're lying. You're lying. So, um, a lot of great lessons. A lot of great sermons, great stuff in there. I'm not, not disparaging that, but I'm just saying that out of all the books written, if you're going to tell me you've read all these books and you come back and you bought the Bible's your favorite, I, I know you don't read. It's a pretty good litmus test right there. <laughs> all right, we'll get back to that conversation with Joe Clifford shortly. Uh, but first, uh, let's uh, hear from the experts. And by experts, I do mean bookstore owners particularly crime fiction bookstores most of the time. Uh, but uh, in this instance, we're going to hear from a couple of people who certainly know uh, what you ought to be given a chance to when it comes to uh, to reading. Uh, in this case, we're going to hear from Fran Fuller, formerly of uh, Seattle Mystery Bookshop, and Robin Agnew from Aunt Agatha's Mystery Bookshop in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Fran, how are you? Doing well, doing well, Frank. How are you? I hope your sales are going really well. Things are great. Um, you've got a couple of books uh, to talk about. I do. Um, there's a Canadian author, and his name is Ian Hamilton. And he has written a series of books called the Ava Lee novels. And Ava Lee is one of these really amazing offbeat characters. She's Canadian, but she was raised traditional Chinese. Her She is the daughter of her father's second wife. He's got three. They're not, he's not divorced. He's married to all three at the same time. One lives in Hong Kong, one lives in Toronto, and one lives in Australia. It's a Chinese cultural thing, and that's just kind of the way it is. Um, Ava Lee is an accountant. She's not your typical PI sleuth going out. She's an accountant. But she sees patterns and numbers, and she's willing to dig. She is partnered with a man we know as Uncle. And Uncle was a member of the Chinese triad, 
but now he's retired. But when the big houses, the big families have problems they don't necessarily want other people to know about, they come to uncle, especially financial problems. And uncle and Ava Lee sort things out. And I love this series. JB is the one who said I had to read the first one. However, and there is a big however, and this is a grump. This is a mini rent to the uh, publishing world. There are two books in this series that you cannot get in the United States. In the middle of the series. Growl, growl, growl. Oh, wow. Um, you can't get The Scottish Banker of Surabaya, and you can't get The Two Sisters of Borneo. I had to go to Canada to get them. Well, actually, they were brought to me by a friend from Canada. Hey, don't confess to any smuggling crimes on my show. I did not smuggle. <laughs> they, they were actually brought as gifts. But um, you can't get them here in the U.S. And you need to read this series in order to get the most out of it. It's just frustrating as all get out. So what's the but, name of the series again? Uh, it's called the Ava Lee series, A-V-A-L-E-E, -E, the Ava Lee series by Ian Hamilton. Okay. Um, and they're just so wonderful. He gets into Chinese culture. I don't know what his, his connection is, but it's gotta be a solid one. He gets into the culture, the food, the, the status and the way things are approached in such exquisite detail. It's not overbearing. It's, it's very, very Chinese in, in its delicacy. But make no mistake, asses get kicked in <laughs> Seriously, get kicked. That's cool. <laughs> so um, what's the second book? The second book, it, it, it has just recently come out in paperback, and it was one of my absolute favorites uh, from last year. And it's by Jocelyn, Jocelyn Jackson, spelled Jocelyn, but it's Jocelyn. And it's called The Almost Sisters. And it doesn't look like a crime book, and it doesn't look like the sort of book that most crime mystery fiction readers would read. It's got a really pretty cover, but it's possibly one of the most amazing books I've read in a while. Um, the premise is that you've got a comic book designer. She's a big name in comic books. And she lives up in the D.C. area, and she has worked for all the big houses, D.C., Marvel, all of them, um, as an artist. And she's got her own comic that has a huge following, Violence and Violet. And she's living her life. And she goes to a Comic-Con, and she meets Batman. and. As happens at conventions, sometimes things get a little out of hand, and she never finds out who he is, but she comes up pregnant. She, she has a bat baby. <laughs> she has a bat baby, and he's a half-black bat baby because this was a very dark Batman. She's from the South, 
She's uh, from the Deep South, and her grandmother, who was the matriarch of the family, is starting to lose her mind. Dementia, Alzheimer's, something is kicking in. And our, our gal has to go down and look after grandma, whose best friend is black. And one of the nice things that Jocelyn does is she investigates again, like Maureen Johnson, as I said earlier uh, in a previous whatever, that she touches on really difficult concepts without beating you over the head. And this one, of course, is racism. And she leads you into both sides of how people think and what's going to happen and how people react. It, it was one thing for her grandmother to have a good friend who's black because everybody in the South knew who was the caretaker and who was in charge. But that wasn't exactly true. And so much comes up in this. And yes, there is crime. There is definite crime. Um, I think the crime is that I haven't read this book yet. So what's her name again? It's Jocelyn. Jocelyn Jackson, but it's Jackson. spelled J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N. And the H is silent. And if you ever find out why, let Joss know. Because <laughs> she has no idea and her mother won't tell her. Uh, and the name of this one is? The Almost Sisters. Oh, uh, that's a good title. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Fran, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again. Absolutely. I'm having fun with this, and, and you brought me out of my funk, Frank, and I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, good. Hello, Robin. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, It's been a few months since we've had you on the show. It has, Yeah. Well, that um, gives you plenty of time to come up with a a great uh, a great recommendation. What do you? Yeah, ask? it does. Um, uh, this this time I'm recommending a book that's just out in paperback, named August Snow, and it's by Stephen Mac Jones, and it's a first private eye novel set in Detroit, Mexican town, with an African American protagonist. Um, it's just a really refreshing spin on the private eye novel. And it's also classic. Um, he writes very much in the vein of Lauren Estelman or Elmore Leonard. And the, it's a really fast-paced, quick read. Um, great story, very tight. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. I that sounds it. interesting. It is. I, I hope lots of people read it. They should. <laughs> well, cool. All right, folks, uh, there you have it. Uh, some great recommendations from some great ladies who really know what they're talking about. Uh, so if you're not sure what your next book should be, uh, they just gave you a great place to start. Uh, several possibilities. And now uh, let's get back to my conversation with Joe Clifford. Uh, for some people who may not uh, be completely familiar with your background and your writing career, um, Let's go back to your first book for a second, and uh, can you give me an idea how that book came to pass? A Junkie Love was your first, right? Yeah, now they've offended half your listening. <laughs> uh, if, they, if, they, if they're uh, offended by that, they're probably listening to the wrong show. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, Junkie Love was the first book I, 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 in Junkie Love, I wrote 
while I was still homeless and strung out, I started writing it. I mean, I was just convinced I was going to be a writer and, and things worked out, but not really because of that. Um, it took me 10 years to write that book. Uh, and, you know, it's a story of, of, of leaving Connecticut and this small farm town and, and uh, trying to be a rock and roll star and, you know, the drugs, but, you know, more than that, it's, it's kind of about finding a home and a place where you belong. And, you know, so it's sort of a Bill Dung's Roman to use my uh, grad school 10 cent words um, and, and coming of age and figure, figuring out what I want to do and where I fit in and who I was. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was the longest, that was a long time to write. It was a long time to get published. Uh, it felt forever. Um, in reality, I graduated, I left uh, FIU in 2008 and I had my first agent by 2010, but it really felt like a much longer uh, process than that. The book was published in 2013 accepted, I think, in 2011. So um, it just felt like it was a, uh, um, a much longer process. But when you want something so bad and uh, it's right there, uh, you know, time's slow as time is skewed. You don't, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, your term, your relationship to reality isn't exactly accurate. Yeah, I think uh, we can all, we can all uh, identify with that for sure. Um, so just, uh, again, people might not be familiar. You, you actually experienced a, a lot of the things that you write about there. I mean, you, you did have, uh, a period in your life where you struggled with, uh, with addiction. And, and so you drew on those, uh, those experiences to, to make this book, uh, more realistic and more. Well, uh, yeah, it was released as a novel. Um, but that was because at the time, a million little pieces had come out and my publisher didn't want to deal with that whole thing so uh it was the is the only offer i had um and they said we'll do it we can't do it as a memoir it's gonna be a no no novel i'm like oh, whatever come on i don't care uh but if you read the book it's obviously true um there's there's it reads you can, when you're reading something that's true it comes and you can tell that it's true the nice thing is that we're coming out with a second edition this year and uh jerry stall who wrote permanent midnight uh, another hero of mine was gracious enough to write the um the forward to it and we're going to be releasing it as a memoir this time. And nothing's going to change. The text is going to stay the same. So what was called a novel is not being called a memoir. Um, so there's really, uh, you know, there's no conflict there. Yeah, that's, it's all true stuff. And, um, and uh, you know, you might tweak emotions for, you know, storytelling and narrative state. But it's, uh, yeah, I went through it from 92 through 2002, roughly. I was, uh, I was addicted to uh, a lot of drugs. A lot of drugs. So, um and then when I got off the drugs, I, uh, you know, coming back, you spend your 20s screwing up, you spend your 30, 30s putting, putting the pieces back together. Um, and you get some perspective. That's when I learned how to write the novel, uh, or how to write his, you know, his craft, and went back and took some of this raw material I had originally and, and shaped it into something more cohesive. Because even if it's a true story, it doesn't make it a book. You, know, you got to have, you know, your rising swells and your arcs and your, Denouements and all that other crap, um, and so yeah, you got to fit into a, a sort of template. Um, yeah, you know, it's just the secret of writing, right? Yeah. Somehow take these personal experiences and make them resonate uh, to a larger audience. Um, and horrific things happening doesn't make a story necessarily. It's uh, you know what makes a story is it's kind of like art. You don't know what it is, but you know when you see it. So Jenny Love, I think, um, spoke to a few people, you know, who have, who've had addiction problems or. Uh, know people who've had addiction problems and, and uh, you know, I, I take that as a compliment that I, I got that part right because it's a, it's a, uh, living that way is, if you've lived that way, 
you don't want to go back. And if you have people who are living there, you kind of want to understand them. And I'm glad I went into the fire and I'm glad I'm out of the fire. I have no desire to return. Yeah, I was really interested in in talking with you uh, today because, you know, I came into contact with a lot of people who were struggling with, with drug addiction, but the, the scenario or the setting for that was usually in my role as uh, being a cop for 20 years. So that's a very different interaction a lot of times uh, because you're, you know, you're engaged in, you know, your, your official duties and stuff. But one of the things I always found interesting was, was how easy at least for me, when you're talking to somebody that's going through that, even if they just did something shitty or you're having to deal with, you know, a problem that's going on, uh, you know, it, I never lost sight of the fact that this is somebody who's going through some shit. And that doesn't, maybe that means I can't, it doesn't mean I can't give them a break this time, or maybe it does mean I can give them a break. I don't know. It depends on the scenario. But, you know, I, I think sometimes people, they, they forget that. They forget that this is somebody who's, who's dealing with something. I'm not talking about forgiving them for what they're doing or for giving them a pass or just, just that little bit of just a little bit of understanding, I guess it, it, it always, uh, it always seemed to be appreciated just even a little bit, uh, but who knows, maybe I'll probably because it wasn't very often you experienced cops who, uh, who, who felt that way. I mean, I, I was in San Francisco and it was, which is a pretty um, liberal progressive place. And, after a while, I mean, it's, un, it's not like it's not understandable. I mean, when you're, when you're a drug addict, you're breaking laws. <laughs> you're not just the drugs, but you're generally committing crimes. You're, you're putting people in jeopardy. You're doing bad things. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a cop's job to uh, stop you from doing those bad things. However, when you're living that way, you don't look at it quite like that. You don't, you don't recognize your part in all of it. There's a, there's, a, there's a great Steve Earle quote from when he was, uh, when he was a junkie. And it's, uh, you know, just picture the junkie Steve Earl voice. And he's like, mm, we're not bad people, man. Bad things just happen to us. Well, no, you're, you're bad people and you're doing bad things. You're, you're causing this stuff. But when you live that way, that's how you really feel. That's how a junkie feels. Like, man, why, why can't people give me a break? Um, well, they can't give you a break because, you know, you're, just, you're stealing money. And you're going to stores and stealing food. That's why they can't give you a break. So when you get caught um, and you're in those situations where, where you're up against authority, you have this weird idea where you're being persecuted. And you're not being persecuted. You're being you're being caught for breaking the law, but um, it still creates a strange tension. And uh, I can't say I had many good interactions with the police over the years. Although I did have a few, uh, which I put in Junkie Love, that were and the ones where the where cops were kind to me. We had those moments of um, of connection. There's there's one in uh, Junkie Love in Chapter Eleven that I, I totally rebuffed in Springsteen. Um, but if you get a chance, you, you'll, you'll recognize the line. But it, essentially, it comes down to I'm. I'm stealing stuff in a store and a cop comes out and he pulls me out of the store and it's late at night. We're, you know, we're at, we're at a seven 11 and he's, you know, this guy's furious at me. I really think he's going to take a swing at me as his partner comes up to me and he says, you know, like, you know, how can you use needles kid? Don't you know, you know, you get HIV from that shit. And I said, you know, I don't have HIV. You know, I I get tested. He says, uh, yeah, how do you know that? And I said, well, I just went to the free clinic and I got my results yesterday. So what were they? He said, they were negative. And the cop says, that's good. That's good, which is straight off the Springsteen line. Uh, yeah, I, it was a, uh, from yeah, the, it was a nice uh, moment. It was like, the river. Yeah, yeah, it was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's a nice moment where it's like, okay, I'm not a cop right now, and you're not a junkie. You're, I'm a human being, you're a human being, yeah. and no matter what you're doing here, I don't want to see you get that disease, and I don't want to see you die, kid. Uh, and it, yeah, it, it, it you know, gave me chills then, gives me chills to tell the story now. Yeah, I th- yeah, that's a great story. I think it's uh, because it isn't typical that it, it, it stands out to be so great. 
uh, comes off that way. Um, so Junkie Love was the first. You had another standalone that I, I noticed on your site there called uh, uh, Wake Up the Undertaker. Or Wake the Undertaker, yes, my right hand stepchild. What's my, that about? Uh, that's about uh, uh, 250 pages that nobody read. Um, no, it's... Uh, <laughs> 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 well, let's put the word yet at the end of that sentence. <laughs> you know, you write your books and, and you love your books and you can still go back and say, oh, I see what happened there and I see what I did wrong there. So while I love that book and, and I'm not in any way disavowing it, I love the book. I love, uh, I see why it didn't resonate. What I, what I did was I took all these elements of things I liked, you know, like noir and Sin City and Rocky and uh, science fiction, all this weird shit that I liked, all my influence. I threw them in a book together. And I didn't realize that when you're writing a genre, you have to adhere to the rules of the genre. You can't have a historical romance and have an alien show up on page 150. You can, which would be really fucking good to pull it off. Um, because it creates this weird sense of displacement. So I have this like timeless San Francisco city. It's clear to San Francisco. I call it Bay City. Like, so all these weird things, I think, that, that create a sense of unease. And there's unease that's, you know, sort of more pleasant. There's unease like you don't know where you're going. And I think that's what happened with that book. Um, although, like I said, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically, I mentioned if, uh, who was the guy? Uh, it used to be a horn player. God, I can't remember his name. Uh, he, was a, he was a jazz player in the uh, 50s and he uh, really, really good looking guy. And he uh, got addicted to heroin. Uh, names escape me right now. But um, I imagine his life, uh, you know, as kind of, uh, if you turn to a, a, you know, a gangster um, and that's what, uh, and that's what I did, which, yeah, even explain it now, you can see kind of why maybe it didn't take off. Uh, well, that was uh, published by Snubnose Press. Chet Baker, yeah. Oh, Chet Baker, yeah. Uh, and that book came out from Snubnose Press? Yes, the now defunct uh, Snubnose Press, which yeah. was... Uh, yeah, we were, uh, we, we were publishing brothers there, there as well as Down and Out then. I had yeah. a couple of books come out before they uh, before they went under, so... so yeah, did you I get your know, rights like... I feel like they're doing what Snubnose tried to do and not, you know, not oh, absolutely, really yeah. fault of Snubnose, just the fact that it's really hard to do what Eric Campbell is yeah. pulling off now. But, um, you know, providing that quicker direct line. Um, and it's a lot of work. So, you know, I don't know how they do. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, they're doing some they're doing some great work and they're pumping out some some awesome books from a wide variety of writers and and uh really getting a lot of different voices out there so it's it's pretty cool and they had the eight um, anthony nominations last year so they're, they're getting attention which is which is huge so your flagship series yeah. uh, the J, the j porter series tell me about that yeah j porter series is is published with ocean view publishing um features Jay Porter on a state clearing slash handyman in the new hampshire mountains very cold small rocky um, uh, you know, a chunk of tundra. Uh, it's, it's been very good to me. And I made a decision early on about how I wanted to write that series. And Ocean View is very, very supportive of that vision. Uh, that vision, however, does, you know, every, every decision you make as a writer comes with, you know, its pros and its cons. And, and early on making the decision I made to tell it the way I, I, I told it was, you know, sort of, cutting off the chance to maybe make it bigger than, than it is. Uh, I mean, it's doing well, but it's, it's uh, the story I wanted to tell was about two brothers and uh, very much the story of my brother and, and me and my brother uh, sadly passed away uh, in November, but he's based uh, Chris Porter in the books is based on my brother. Um, it deals with addiction and it deals with uh, 
strange relationships and it really deals with the things you want to say to somebody else that you really can't. Uh, those books, uh, all the lamentation books were the conversations I wanted to have with my brother, Josh, but I, I couldn't because too much uh, had happened between us. And sadly, I don't think he ever read any of the books. Um, but yeah, in, in a way, you know, it was, uh, they allowed me to talk to him while well, there's still time, you know, entertaining with gunfights and, and murders and, and crimes and, and, you know, your job as, a, as an author certainly isn't uh, therapy and it's, it's not meant to be cathartic only, but, um, you know, the heart of the story really was about the two brothers. So as all these things are happening with, with the Lombardi uh, family in the books, the Lombardi family is based on the Manafort brothers. I'm sure you heard of Paul Manafort. Uh, my father worked for the Manafort brothers. It was Paul Manafort and Frank Manafort. My dad worked for Frank. Uh, and in, this, in the books, Michael Lombardi goes off in politics, much like uh, Paul, Lombard, uh, Paul um, Manafort did. And Adam Lombardi, who's based on uh, Frank Manafort, stayed in the uh, family business. And my dad worked for them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of a shifty, shady family. And uh, these books allowed me to um, explore some of the more evil components of capitalism and, uh, you know, environmental terrorism. Uh, which is sort of what they uh, are guilty of committing in my eyes. Now, the, the most, the first one was which? Lamentation. And then there's a new one that's either just coming out or is about to. Yeah, one comes out a year. Uh, you know, first one was uh, Lamentation. Then there was December Boys, Give Up the Dead. The next one that comes out is Broken Ground. That deals uh, more specifically with what I was talking about in the, uh, in the tainted soil and toxic work conditions that uh, Manafort knew about and both Lombardi knows about. Um, and then there's the fifth in the series, Rag and Bone, which is the last one that's under contract. I don't know what happens after uh, after that. So it's kind of a five book arc. Um, and that's that when I was talking about the, the alluding to the decision I made, that's how the decision I made early on was that I wanted to tell a uh, sort of like a mini series over five, over five books, as opposed to making them strictly standalone, each one. Uh, you sort of, uh, you can read them alone, but, but uh, you know, it works better if you know the whole story. So kind of like a TV series that goes on yeah. for five yeah. years. There's a season arc, but there's also a series arc. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, when I uh, went to your website there to, to make sure I wasn't missing anything that I wanted to talk about, I came across uh, a, a book trailer that Jamie DeWolf Films did for you for Give Up the Dead. Yeah. Um, and, you know... I, I'm not trying to be a dick, but most of the time book trailers kind of suck, you know, um, <laughs> they just aren't that great. I mean, they just, I mean, cause we writers can't afford to do better. Um, this is a really well done trailer. I mean, the acting is good. The, the, the way that it's shot is good. The quality of the, of, of the, you know, the look of it is, is good. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I like, like I said, I usually don't like book trailers a whole lot. Yeah, we wanted to do a little movie. Uh, Jamie and I also did one for uh, Junkie Love that's also on the website um, that featured the music of Get Set Go. And uh, this one featured a, an original song by Michael Schnabel of Tukau Garage. So that helped. Um, Jamie's uh, little known fact about Jamie, or not a little known fact, I mean, if he looks up his name, we'll find out Jamie's actually the great grandson of L. Ron Hubbard. So he's always in the news. Oh, for really? <laughs> Scientology. He's got this huge thing out here called Threats Without Regrets that has like eight, 900 people show up, uh, you know, there's like a circus sort of just twisted comedy circus, just very Bay Area, but he's a great guy, terrific filmmaker um, and a friend. So, you know, I get, I get uh, a little bit of a break there. And uh, yeah, we had some uh, people we knew who acted, Kelly Richardson, who's 
who's a uh, stunt person in Hollywood is uh, plays the part of Allison and Ace, uh, my friend Ace is Jay Porter. And he, you know, I thought he did a great job as Jay. Uh, all he, <laughs> he did sure, really was he sure got the big, big drunk. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, I was gonna say he sure had the 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 double sized Coors beer yeah. can part of the oh, acting he drank down. It. He drank it. Uh, that's his job and mckay uh, our friend mckay williams played turley he did a very good job as turley so yeah, it was yeah, it was it was fun and, and uh, i thought it came out very good i agree with you most book trailers suck although eric beatner has one that's really yeah. really quick and fast and, and low budget but it's a fucking great little trailer yeah. you get a chance to check it out yeah I, i've seen that actually he's uh uh his buddy darren meekin is in it and Darren, he introduced me to Darren. Darren's actually from Spokane, where I lived most of my life uh, before I moved down to Oregon here a couple of years ago. And uh, Darren did a couple of uh, book narrations for me as well. But uh, Eric's just a stellar uh, editor, I think, is a big part of why that worked out so well. He's, he's a fucking great guy, talented guy, and one of the nicest fucking people you'll ever meet. He's just yeah. really nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he really is. He really is. He's yeah. he's outstanding, uh, and he's another down and out guy. I think he uh, is a down and out guy. Yeah. I, I'm pretty excited. Are you going to go to uh, BoucherCon this? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Weekend? You'll find yeah. me and Danny Gardner on the golf course because it's at a golf resort this year. So uh, that's where we're going to plan on spending most of our time. Um, but yeah, I'll be there. I've been to. Well, I'm super Boucher. excited. I haven't been to a BoucherCon before. I've I've uh, just never never gone and. Uh, I'm looking forward to it this year because it's right there in their in the backyard of down and out. I think it's the and, best best conference. I mean, I go to a lot of them, but uh, and they all have their but like Bouchercon's my favorite. The people, uh, it's very down to earth, fan centric. Everyone's just really good. That's the thing with crimes. Everything's really nice. I, I grew up, I grew up. I started writing, you know, going to to the literary more literary festival like AWP, which um, you know I don't want to I don't want to generalize, but AWP is kind of filled with douchebags. And uh, she's spending like, you know, 14,000 douchebags for like three days. And it's not that they're douchebags by nature. Um, it's more that the environment they put themselves in forced them to be douchebags because literary fiction has this very catty sort of, uh, everybody's trying to write that great American novel. You know, there's no real market to get it out. So you have to hope you hit big. So there's a lot of, I don't know. I, I just not, maybe it's probably, what it probably really is, is I never felt comfortable among that crowd. I always felt like an imposter. Um, and so maybe I was a douchebag, but uh, I feel much more home at, at, at a crime writers convention. And Bouchercon is, is my favorite of the bunch. You know, I think one of the few people that pulls off the mix of literary writing with a crime fiction, you know, in, in the crime fiction genre, is somebody we already talked about, and that's Dennis Lane. I mean, uh, uh, his what amazes me about him is like even like the Kenzie and Gennaro novels, right? I mean, they're straight up detective novels and, and, the, and what happens in those novels, I mean, they're well plotted and there's a, a, some great twists, but um, you know, it's fairly within the genre run of the mill in that regard. But the way he writes the literary turns of phrase, the beautiful use of language uh, at different times is just, it's, it's amazing. And it's uh it, it, it once is heart, heartening. You know, if, when I read Dennis Lehane, I feel like when I watch Bruce Springsteen or somebody like that play guitar, it's like at once very amazed. You're amazed and, and heartened that a human being can do that. And then you think about your own ability level at that same task. And it's a little discouraging. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's Jim Hall's line. I studied under Jim Hall at FIU where, where Dennis went and, uh, and he had a great line about reading Silence of the Lambs and how he read the book and he was both enthralled and depressed because he read the book and like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then depressed because holy shit, bar's been raised that much higher. Um, and that's really what it is. Yeah. And then 
you know, there's the, the Gore Vidal line, right? Every time a friend of mine succeeds, a part of me dies. You can be happy for somebody else's good, good, good luck and good fortunes, while at the same time being besieged with, uh, you know, bitter jealousy and envy. Um, so I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive and, and, and you know, make you a bad person because I, I don't know if you'd be human, certainly with writing. Uh, you know, anytime when your friends, you know, you get, oh, that's great. I'm glad you got an Edgar nomination, but fucking I want an Edgar nomination. I, I think that's, that's <laughs> um, I, that is one thing I have really uh, enjoyed ever since I, I got into the writing field, uh, even back in, you know, the, you know, mid 2000s, 2004, 2005, with the, the short stories uh, circuit, is that crime writers do tend to be a very supportive group. I mean, they, I don't know a lot of them that look at it as a zero sum game. I mean, yeah, it is where you come to the Edgar nominations. We can't all get that. Yeah. But when it comes to success, like I, I can be thrilled for you that Jay Porter series is doing wonderful or that, that you get, you know, just are climbing the charts or something because it doesn't mean you're taking away my potential readers. No, the prize is so little. <laughs> I think we realize the prize is so little. There's no point fighting over it. And to go back to, to clarify before I insult every literary fiction writer out there. Um, it's just the prize is different, you know, so you, when the prize is different, you relate to other people differently. So, you know, the EWP type conferences, the EWP world, there's a different prize with us. The, the prize just isn't, there's no point really in, in, uh, sort of stepping on each other's backs to climb and get it because it's just not that big, you know, and, and it doesn't mean that, you know, if one person does well, you know, you can't do well. Uh, and what we're fighting over just isn't worth it. So yeah, as, as a community, crime writers tend to be really, really nice and supportive. Um, uh, you know, they'll help you with blurbs, they'll help you with just about anything. And uh, it's funny because the joke I always make is that, you know, the crime writers are writing about just these horrible things and murders and terrible killings and heads blowing up and gray matter splattered, but to a person, they are really, really nice people. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of funny. I mean, we get all out on the page. I think Hillary Davidson said that to me. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, every can't get nominated for every award except for Art Taylor, who, who Art Taylor's nominated every year. Art Taylor, they should just call them the Art Taylor Awards because every year Art Taylor's up for for a uh, an Edgar or or uh, uh, something. He's an amazing short story writer, but it's funny. Um, but yeah, most of us are. are we'll get one nomination to be lucky. And, uh, and yeah, so you can be happy for art. You can be happy for, for, you know, your friends when they sell movie deals and you can be happy for people when they get French deals, except for Mike McCrary, because he fucking got a French deal of a book, book I published and I couldn't get a French deal. So I always bust his balls about that. But for the most part, uh, yeah, you know, everybody does well and then it helps you do well because you know, you're pulling, you know, rather than uh, pulling each other down, you're pulling each other up and it's, it's, it yeah. works in crime fiction ridiculously well. Yeah, that's the piece I think that's different for me is that's what you see is people they're not clambering out of the pot and yelling, you know, buy suckers, you know, and you're off to the penthouse, you know, it's like, all right, here, give me your hand. Let's go. You know, people tend to to help out a lot. Yeah, because it helps you out. You know, if they do well, you do well. So what's the next book that's coming out then? Uh, the very next, next one comes out is Broken Ground, and that's the Jay Porter book that comes out in June. Following that will be the one that got away with Down and Out, and that'll be in December followed by the final Jay Porter in, uh, in 2019, uh, really five in the series. And then Skunk Train comes out that winter and the following summer, Occam's Razor comes out. And sometime in between all of that is the second edition of Junkie Love, which uh, I'm not really sure exactly what, but it'll be between now and then. That's a busy calendar, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasted, I wasted the whole decade uh, being a shithead and uh, fucking up. So <laughs> I'm going to make it for the last time.
<laughs> playing a little catch up, are you? <laughs> oh, playing a little catch up. And then the morbid joke I make, which is terrible, but it's true, is that my family all dies in their fifties. My brother was forty three, my mom was fifty three, my father's fifty six. So I'm forty seven. There's and it, it you know, I joke about it, but it really is a pressure when you feel like, holy shit, like, you know, everybody you know dies that early, like in your family, you sort of you know, there's a fire that under you, you know, gotta get some stuff done. You uh you, you talked about Jay Porter uh the whole series being, uh, you know, underneath it all, an opportunity for you to talk to your brother. And I think I read, I'm, I'm almost sure I read this on your, on one of your blogs there that, uh, uh, just because you're not Jay Porter doesn't mean Jay Porter isn't you. Did I yeah. get that right? Yeah. What, uh, I, I think I know what you mean by that, but, uh, why don't you tell us? Well, you know, one of the hardest realizations of writing Jay Porter was the number of people that came back to me and were like, God, that guy's such an asshole. Because, you know, I put the stuff that I think in there. I mean, Jay Porter's ideas are, are my ideas. They're, um, you know, the, the, the anecdote I give is that with the Semmer boys, I would take the fights I had with my wife um, verbatim and put them in the book. And I was, you know, obviously thinking Jay's right because they're my words. And the number of people who came back were like, oh, my God, why did she put up with him and took her side? <laughs> because I still read some boys like he's fucking right. He doesn't want to work this job. She wanted to work that crappy job. Um, but, yeah, so so it's that sort of thing. And, and then and then uh, which which is nice when you're writing a series and, and you have a readership. I can incorporate that um, feedback into future books. So Jay becomes aware of other people. Uh, other people's views of him, uh, which is which is nice. There's a give and take, and any book I think uh, is, a, is a any type type of art is an ongoing dialogue. It's a conversation, and with a series, it's it's even more so. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, um, and and there's parts of Jay that aren't me, but yeah, everything that you know, I'm, I'm in there, and, and he's he and I are intricately forever linked. Well, I uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Joe, and uh, hope to run into you and uh, the aforementioned Danny Gardner yeah. there at VoucherCon. Uh, he was on the show a while back. Uh, he was my second guest, I think. And uh, uh, what a great guy when it comes to his his perceptions and thoughts on on race in America were oh, he's awesome, uh, pretty compelling. Plus, he's funnier than shit. He's funnier than shit. He's an awesome writer. He's an awesome guy. He's an even better friend. So yeah, oh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, um, I, like I said, I look forward to coming across you again. I really thank you, uh, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, in the spirit of our, uh, our muse, uh, I'll, I'll see you further on up the road. All right. Take care. <laughs> All right. I, I really enjoyed talking to Joe Clifford. And uh, the fact that he's friends with uh, Danny Gardner doesn't surprise me because uh, they have some similarities. They're both very cool guys, easy to talk to. Um, so... Uh, this is the time in the show usually where we will do a flash forward uh, kind of quick hit questions with our next guest uh, but we're going to do something a little different in April. April is uh, not going to be a single guest month uh, like most of the rest of uh, the episodes have been. It is going to be uh, what I am calling the collaborators episode. I am going to do an interview, a short interview, uh, with each of the five people that I have collaborated with over the course of my writing career. So we will hear from uh, Colin Conway. We'll hear from Jim Wilski. Uh, we'll hear from uh, Eric Beatner, from Bonnie Paulson, uh, and we will hear from uh, Larry Kelter. Uh, so uh, they're all, all going to be short interviews, but I uh, thought it would be interesting to get them all under the same uh, episodic roof, if you will. So I'm pretty excited about that. That'll be a lot of fun. 
I'd like to say thanks to Joe Clifford for coming on the show, to Down and Out Books for sponsoring it, uh, to Fran Fuller and to Robin Agnew for making some great recommendations. And uh, as always to you, those uh, listeners out there that uh, are the reason why I continue to do this. Thanks for the support. Please support the authors who come on the show uh, in any way you can. Well worth your attention. Uh, so next month, Collaborator Month. Till then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you, sometimes when you're in the wrong place, you got to write crime.